Speedy space delivery. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. After spending about a month on the International Space Station, SpaceX's new Cargo Dragon capsule splashed down off the coast of Florida. It's a departure from previous versions of the vehicle, which splashed down in the Pacific. The new splash zone means scientists can get their hands on their returning equipment faster, meaning they can make critical observations of experiments quicker, opening up more opportunities for space-based science. The new cargo spacecraft is also bigger and has more power for space-based experiments, a boon for researchers conducting science on the ISS. To talk more about these new capabilities and what that means for space research, we'll speak with Jennifer Buckley, Deputy Chief Scientist for the International Space Station. Then, SpaceX's Cargo Dragon isn't the only spacecraft opening up research opportunities for space-based science. New vehicles and more astronauts are helping bulk up the research capabilities on the orbiting lab. We'll talk with space policy and research analyst Laura Forsick about how the commercial sector is helping with research in space. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on America's Space Station. SpaceX's 21st resupply mission for NASA launched from Kennedy Space Center last month, carrying a brand new vehicle called Cargo Dragon. The new vehicle carried dozens of science experiments and crew supplies like food and clothing up to the ISS. After its one-month stay on orbit, it came home. But this new vehicle has new capabilities, like the ability to splash down off of Florida's coast near Kennedy Space Center and more space for cargo. To talk more about these new capabilities and how the upgraded Cargo Dragon is helping scientists with space research, we're joined by Jennifer Buckley, Deputy Chief Scientist for the ISS. Now, just to note, we spoke with Buckley ahead of the splashdown that happened last week. At the time, SpaceX planned to land the spacecraft in the Atlantic. Instead, it splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico off Florida's coast. Buckley begins that conversation talking about the spacecraft's upgraded capabilities. Um, the big difference for our researchers is that that infrastructure we set up to um, land crews in the Atlantic and return them very quickly uh, to shore is the same that we'll be using for our research. Um, So that means all of the planning, the boats, the logistics, um, there's a helicopter involved, all of these things um, that uh, were put in place for the commercial crew program can now be used for science. So under our old um, CRS-1 contract, which is when we landed off the coast of California, uh, it took researchers probably at least 48 hours sometimes um, after splashdown to be able to get their science uh, in their hands. And that was delivered to the Long Beach airport where we would distribute it and and hand over. Um, Now with it coming back to Kennedy Space Center, it can come back as early as four hours after splashdown. We kind of have a staggered return. Um, Some comes back four hours, some nine hours. So you can see the majority of the science is is gonna be coming back much faster. Um, Also by returning to Kennedy Space Center, they're returning to um, an area where we have infrastructure set up. So we've got labs on site so the researchers can get the science in their hands. They're picking it up right on site. Um, and if they need to do any immediate analysis or measurements, we have everything ready to go for them uh, right there. So this is this is really exciting. It changes the, the type of science we can do on board for sure. Let's take a step back and, and you kind of talked about you know, the infrastructure that is there. Um, Walk me through the process of how this science is going to be pulled off the dragon. Give us, give us a sense of the day of. 
So the day of, all of the planning um, is handled by one of our other organizations in, in the ISS program, and we work very closely with them in the um, uh, in the science program. So that's, that's our mission ops and integration um, folks. And so uh, the first round of science is anticipated to return at about splashdown plus four hours. Um, so that is the science that, uh, that can come back on the helicopter. Um, and that's going to include some really high profile investigations for us. Um, that's going to be some uh, rodent research. So we have some mice that are going to be coming back and we're going to be studying readaptation. Um, and we have some um, engineered heart tissue investigations. Uh, that's a collaboration through the National Institutes of Health. Um, so those will return to the research team um, anywhere from one to four hours after after receipt. So, you know, this this is the first time we've done it. And some of it depends on the complexity. Um, of how we get stuff back, how we distribute it, and what the weather looks like. Um, and then we have a second early return, which I mentioned, uh, which is about splashdown plus nine hours. Um, so that will bring back most of our other science, um, with the exception of things like um, stuff that's in freezers that can that can stay there and stay sta stable for a long time, um, or if it's you know non-science, um, you know uh, stowage and things like that. Um, you know those those can stay. Uh, to the third wave of return. So in the second wave, we're going to be bringing back stuff um, that is uh, refrigerated, um, maybe has some cold stowage, has some cells, some some life science time critical investigations, but but something that can last beyond the four hours. And then that third wave of return um, is going to be when the whole capsule comes back, um, and that's going to be uh, roughly 48 hours after splashdown. Uh, again, it, you know that's that's the, kind of the long end. Uh, we may get it back sooner. Um, they did that frequently on on the Pacific coast, and so we'll we'll see how that goes on the Atlantic um, as well. Um, and that's things that have been, as I mentioned, in freezers, powered refrigerators, um, you know, things that are that are soft stow um, and and don't have a really tight time limit on it. So some of the other cargo that comes home beyond science. Uh, are those mice coming back alive? They are. Oh wow! So will they get their astronaut wings then? <laughs> This is one of the things that's really exciting. This is um, one of the first rodent research investigations that's sponsored by our human research program. Um, we've been doing a lot of, um, you know, kind of more basic fundamental rodent research. And so I, I mentioned earlier, one of the really neat things we can do is do a different type of science with that quick return. So in this rodent research investigation, they can look at the readaptation to gravity and they can look at it at different time points. Um, so we know that organisms and cells will start to re-adapt uh, to gravity at about landing plus 13 hours um, or some of the earliest time points that folks have. Um, and so, you know, as you can imagine, when when people were having to wait up to 48 hours, it gave us some insight to re-adaptation, um, but we were missing some of the early signs. And so this is, you know, this is the what the capability enables is us to start looking at what re-adaptation looks like. Um, at landing, you know, plus four hours. Um, so that's, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's a substantial amount of time. I mean, 48 hours seems like a quick turnaround time from these Pacific um, landings, but they're able to get their hands on these in four hours. You know, this this completely opens up uh, new scientific opportunities, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and does this does this benefit a particular type of science? You know, we're talking about readaptation. I'm thinking, you know, biological or, or health-related experiments, 
Um, is there a particular type of, of research that's going to benefit from this quick timeline? You know, I, I think you're right. I think probably what benefits the most is um, our life science program. Um, you know, we have a lot of those samples coming back live. And so you're looking at, at you know, the changes as, as they readapt. Um, you know, potentially it could... Um, could benefit things that have, you know, fragile structures in, in the future, right, of, of things that you would see change maybe um, under the weight of gravity. Um, but for right now, um, our science on board, kind of the, the heavy hitters are, are the life sciences for sure. The, the capsule itself has been upgraded, right, for the second round of, of commercial cargo um, contracts. It's got more room. It's got additional power. Um, can you talk about how these kind of overall changes to the uh, Cargo Dragon um, is also helping research uh, in space. Absolutely. Um, So you're right. We um, expanded the capability um, of the Cargo Dragon. Uh, So this allows us both to not only fly when we launch, um, going uphill, and return more science. Um, So we have increased the number of powered lockers from six to eight, um, and we actually can return up to 12 of those powered lockers, just depending on the power distribution and and how available it is. Obviously, that means we can we can have more things like cold stowage, refrigerators um, going up and coming back down. Um, we have payloads that, you know, I keep saying cold stowage, but payloads that require incubators as well. Um, so we have a fair number of, of powered science that, uh, that goes to ISS and comes back. Uh, another capability is um, what we're calling extend the lab. So this means that the science can be launched, remain powered, and then return in the Dragon. So that not only increases um, our, our ability to bring assets up and back home, but it expands the footprint we have to work with on space station. It used to be that we would um, berth and then have to take a lot of that cargo, especially the powered stuff out and plug it in on ISS. And now when we dock to station, um, it can just remain in place. So essentially you're, you're gaining all that volume and all those extra resources as, as uh, extra lab space. You know, it sounds like, NASA's partnerships with these commercial companies like SpaceX are are really expanding the research capabilities on the station. You've mentioned quite a few um, opportunities for that. I'm I'm wondering if there are also more benefits now that SpaceX is also sending NASA astronauts to the station, right? I mean, the the crew is is staffed up. I've got to imagine that means more time for science, right? You're absolutely right. So what we know is that... um... When we go from three USOS crew members, previously we've gone to four, that fourth crew member um, is that amount of crew time, I should say, um, is is almost exclusively dedicated to research. And so that means by going from three to four, we actually double the amount of science that we can do on space station. Um, So you can imagine um, now with with going up to five, um, we have quite a bit of extra time for research, um, it's quite frankly, it's been wonderful. Um, you know, we went down to one USOS crew for, for a period of time, um, until we got the demo two crew on. And then, you know, again, um, between demo two and crew one. Um, and so it's been really exciting to see, uh, folks, you know, pick up the pace on science and, and really kind of knock out some of that, that backlog we had during our slower times and, and increase, uh, the, the pace that, that we're getting through investigations. Um, you know, the other thing is, is seeing more crew be excited about science. Um, so we've got some, you know, we've got Kate Rubens on board who, who is a scientist, um, and some of the other, uh, crew members who are on board kind of have their areas of interest. Um, and so, you know, we're doing things like growing, um, radishes on board, uh, which they really enjoyed. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's neat to see a greater number of people being involved um, with the space research community. Who is conducting this research? I mean, whose who's science experiments get to go up on the station and what's that process like? It's a great question. So there are a couple of different ways um, that folks come in and fly research on ISS. Um, there's the traditional NASA users. Um, so, you know, those are for things like NASA internal looking at exploration critical technologies. You know, space station is how we're using the um, the platform is, is really our proving ground for things like going back to the moon and going on to Mars. And so we have a fair number of technology demonstrations and research that, that we're doing internal to buy down those risks for exploration. NASA also funds um, outside researchers. So, you know, academia, they issue grants, um, they fund a variety of researchers in, uh, you know, both biological and physical sciences, as well as uh, human research. Um, we have the National Lab. So the ISS National Lab um, was, uh, ISS was mandated as a national lab by Congress. So um, like many of the other national labs that we have across our country, um, what this did is it opened the space station up to non-NASA users. So 50% of our assets go to the national lab. Um, so that means that we have folks coming in that are from academia. Uh, we have several commercial companies that have come in through this route uh, that are interested in um, using Space Station to look at their science in a new way and potentially advance their research or their products. Uh, we have other government agencies. So I mentioned earlier one of our investigations um, through the National Institutes of Health. Um, we've also had uh, the National Science Foundation, um, the Department of Defense, um, so these these are a variety of ways that that people can fly research um, to ISS. Uh, we we also have um, education um, investigations, and so um, that's that's a really interesting um, thing we can do, and and I really enjoy it is is working with students. So you know part of what what it is is growing the community and getting the next generation interested in space research, um, and so that that's an area that comes in uh, primarily through our ISS National Lab as well. We've been speaking with Jennifer Buckley. She's NASA's Deputy ISS Chief Scientist. Jennifer, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Still to come, how commercial space is creating more opportunities for space-based research. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? Here on America's Space Station, I'm Brendan Byrne. SpaceX's Cargo Dragon isn't the only spacecraft opening up research opportunities for space-based science. New vehicles and more astronauts are helping bulk up the research capabilities on the International Space Station. Here to talk about how the commercial sector is helping with research in space is Laura Forsick. She's a space policy and research analyst and the founder of the space consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much for having me. So we've got a dragon returning with this capability for scientists to be able to get their hands on these experiments in record time. Um, What does this mean for research? 
Well, the great thing about the space shuttle was that it landed back on the runway. And of course, it had life control because of the astronauts. So the, the space shuttle has been retired now for a decade, and we've really missed that capability. So the great thing about the new Dragon is having that capability somewhat return, whereas it doesn't land on a runway, it still splashes down in the ocean, but it does have life support. So we can support animal and plant life that um, you know, maybe can withstand a little bit of a weight while bobbing in the ocean, which is just going to be great because what's supposed to return now on this latest CRS mission from SpaceX is rodents and having live rodents come back and do great things for research. Let's talk about this because, you know, we heard from the deputy ISS scientists about this capability, um, especially for life sciences. You mentioned the rodents. Um, as you can hear, my cat in the back is very excited about the rodents coming back. <laughs> um, but this capability really does help life sciences and biological sciences. Why is that? There are certain experiments where you really need live life forms, live beings to come back plants, animals, and there's been all kinds of animals that have flown in space over the decades. Uh, you know, rodents is just one kind. And so having that capability to bring back live life, and then maybe even do some more reproductive cycles to study the genetics, or maybe it's something more like crystal growth or, or plant life and seeing how it grows differently in, in 1G versus micro G. Having those different ways to experiment where you're no, you don't have to kill something to bring it back, or you don't have to burn it up in the atmosphere, never bring it back. Just having that ability to bring something back and have the scientists study it on the ground in their own labs is very valuable. Since we can't fly all the scientists up in space, although I myself wish we could, um, that is something that is really, truly valuable is bringing the science back to the scientists' hands in the lab. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there is also with this new uh, upgraded cargo dragon, the ability to get more science up to space and also more science back down, um, you know, as someone who, who has done space research before, um, I've got to imagine it's pretty difficult to get your science experiment into space just because of the limited capability. I'm guessing more science. Yes, the science limited can... capability in terms of volume and mass and also the limited uh, transportation cadence. So that's how quickly spacecraft can come and go. So with the increases of SpaceX launches, not just with the, crew, the cargo dragon, but also with the crew dragon, that can bring a lot more science up and down, up and down, which will benefit things so much. And in addition to, to the SpaceX dragon, there's also the Northrop Grumman Cygnus, which also does the same thing, brings science up. And also the um, Sierra Nevada Corporation has been developing a vehicle called Dream Chaser, which is also supposed to come online this year, potentially at the end of the year, to do the same thing. And the great thing about also SpaceX is they're bringing up people now as well. So the increased number of astronauts, whether they are government astronauts or even private individuals who would like to do science, that also increases the amount of science that can be done because not all science can be automated. Some of the science needs a human in the loop, an astronaut. So if there's more people up on space station, and space station historically has had, uh, you know, up, up to, I think it's 11, I think is the, don't quote me on that, but I think it's been up to 11 astronauts and we haven't seen that in a very long time. So the more people up there to do the science, the more science that can be done. And let's talk a little bit about the process of getting science into space. Um, you know, there was the space shuttle program, which was able to take a lot of, of research uh, up to space, drop it off at the space station. But then there was that time uh, when there, there really wasn't so many capabilities and so many ways to get stuff into space. As a researcher, 
seeing all of these things come online, does that mean that you have more opportunities to get into space? And, and how do you kind of tackle convincing NASA to, uh, to send your experiment, to send your hypo- hypothesis to the International Space Station? Yes, more ways to get into space in more ways than one. So there's a double meaning there in that, yes, there's more opportunities to get things to space. So if you are interested in flying something to space, you can talk to um, NASA directly. You can talk to the ISS National Lab cases. You can also contact some commercial companies. There's some up there like NanoRacks, which just launched a the first commercial airlock called Bishop, which can then facilitate even more science payloads. So if you talk to some of these uh, facilitators, they can help you get your science up there. And then the other meaning is physically going up there to do science. So NASA right now is just contracting SpaceX to carry uh, NASA and partner astronauts such as JAXA and ESA. And in the future, SpaceX plans to fly private individuals. And those private individuals have um, every right, if they wish to, to conduct science as well. So if you are a private individual, um, you know, NASA actually has a program set up for suborbital scientists, and which Alan Stern is going to be the first suborbital scientist on Virgin Galactic to fly experiments up there. But in the future, I can also foresee um, whether it's a private individual completely or somebody going up through a NASA-sponsored program, like a payload specialist, the way that used to be, to do science up there up on space station or a commercial space station in the future. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up um, Virgin Galactic because it's not just limited to science on the International Space Station, right? There's Virgin Galactic, which is a a suborbital um, passenger uh, vehicle. There's also uh, Blue Origin's New Shepard, which has been providing uh, opportunities for scientists to do some suborbital microgravity research. All of these commercial companies are coming online and, and, and allowing their scientists to jump on board these vehicles. Yes, we just need to be patient because for for many years now, these companies have been promising that they will fly. And I have no doubt that they will someday fly, whether it's Virgin Galactic or, or Blue Origin or some other company that comes online later. But when is the key word? So we all need to continue to be patient, to wait until it's safe. Um, these two companies I just mentioned, they are, they've been flying science, um, just the science, uh, for a few years now. But if you want to fly with your science, if you will personally want to fly, we're just going to need to be a little bit more patient until it's safe. Laura, the conversation recently has been to the the lifespan of the International Space Station. And, you know, eventually it will have to be decommissioned. Um, at what point is really the argument here? But I'm wondering with so much science happening now, is there the argument to keep the ISS, you know, in orbit for, you know, longer than, you know, we're thinking now? Or are scientists and and mission planners starting to think about what's next for orbital science? Where, Where are we when it comes to an orbiting lab? It's a tricky situation. If you remember back when there were discussions about when to retire the space shuttles, and space shuttles were actually continued a little bit past the initial date of when they were supposed to be retired because they uh, the planners didn't want that gap between transportation systems. Unfortunately, we still had that gap. So then the question is, mirroring that history, that recent history, when do we retire the aging ISS, which still is doing great science, but it is getting older? Uh, when do we retire it? And when can we expect replacements to come on board? And NASA has its own plans for the Lunar Gateway, which it's bringing in international partners and it's going to do science on the Gateway. 
However, that isn't in low Earth orbit. And so there's benefits to being in low Earth orbit versus benefits to being in the lunar environment, the, the lunar orbit, cislunar orbit. And so the idea is commercial companies are going to start replacing the International Space Station. Um, and, and concurrently, there are other government programs that might be bringing up space stations as well. Just this year, the Chinese are going to launch their first module for their large orbital space station. So there are other plans that's going on as well. And you have to figure out how do you integrate commercial companies to continue to have that valuable service of providing science in low Earth orbit. Axiom Space is one company that has been contracted by NASA to begin adding modules to the International Space Station, which the plan is once ISS is going to be deorbited at the end of its life, those modules by Axiom Space can separate and become its own space station. So that's the plan. And hopefully Congress, which has not yet allocated enough funding for this, um, due to you know, different priorities, hopefully they will start seeing how valuable it will be to start funding these commercial LEO operations and start funding it the way that NASA has requested. Each year, NASA has requested something around $150 million per year to start planning for commercial ISS activities. And each year, Congress has failed to provide that funding, giving around 10% of that request instead of the 100% that they've been requesting. So it's really up to um, the funders to have that foresight to be able to see that we don't want that gap and we need to start preparing now. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Gateway, which is um, the mini space station NASA wants to put around the moon, but NASA is also looking at other ways to get science um, to the moon as well. Uh, Laura, can you talk a little bit about how lunar researchers um, are going to be able to get their payloads and their experiments uh, and their sensors to the lunar surface? Yes, when everyone thinks of NASA's Artemis program, they think about landing people on the moon, rightly so, because that's the exciting part. But even also exciting behind those scenes is the science that's going to be done. And there are at least two missions, hopefully two missions that might be launching this year to the moon by private companies. NASA has given contracts called CLIPS, the Commercial Lunar Service, or Commercial Lunar Payload Services. And there are two private companies, Astrobotic and Intuitive Machines, that are supposed to be launching science to the moon this year. And there are other ones that are contracted to launch in future years. And they include landers, rovers, with various scientific instruments. And when you think about the moon, don't think we've been there, done that, because the technology of the 1960s and 70s is vastly different than the technology we have now. We understand so much more about the moon now than we ever did before. And we have orbiters right now. So working together with instruments on the ground and in orbit, and hopefully in the future, um, people to help operate some of these equipment, then we can really dive into how the moon was formed and how Earth was formed since the whole Earth-Moon system was formed somewhat together. And understand a little bit more about how our solar system is formed and what Earth has gone through. And some of the really interesting things that we could possibly use the moon for in the future if we want to build stuff from the building stuff that's on the moon, the, the regolith, the dirt and dust. Maybe we want to use that as building material or break it apart for um, hydrogen and oxygen, which we use for water and propellant. So there's all kinds of reasons why we need to study the science of the moon. And it's right there in our own backyard. Well, we've been speaking with Laura Forsick. She's a space policy analyst and founder of Astrolytical. Laura, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stay connected online. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. We're at AWTY space on Facebook. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast 
or shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our new intern is Kirk Churchill. Welcome, Kirk. As usual, you've heard my cat Paisley. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>